Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 236. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 236 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer Cameron Webb, who I met two years ago at NAM through our mutual friend Mike Cuddy. Thank you, Mike. And uh, we just got around to getting this interview happening, so I'm very excited to bring it to you. Cameron's worked with Motorhead in Some 41, No Effects, Megadeth, Limp Biscuit, and I discovered in the course of our interview, he worked on the music and sound for Yo Gabba Gabba. Anybody with kids might know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, just Google Yo Gabba Gabba. Hilarious show. Kids show, but just kind of like out there. Anyways, very excited to bring you this interview. Cameron Webb coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about a multitude of things. Let's start with Summer Nam. That's right. Nashville, Tennessee. One of my favorite places to go. July 18th through the 20th, 2019. Yeah, Summer Nam will be happening. Uh, I will be there. Absolutely, I will be there. Be hanging out with uh, a lot of my buddies from uh, all different parts of our universe. And uh, I hope to see you there. If you see me at the show, if you see me out in public, please say hello. Introduce yourself. I would love to hear about your particular part of our little universe we call the world of audio. So Summer Nam, yeah, coming up. Check that out. What else do I want to talk to you about? Oh, I tell you. Remember the turntable discussion? Well, for those of you that listen all the time, remember the time when I said, I need your advice on turntables? Many of you suggested, in fact, I think the number one suggestion was the Project Debut Carbon Turntable. Long story short, I didn't take your advice. I, uh, I did some research. Yeah, I did some research. Like I went down to the library and researched it. No, I did what all of you do. I got on Google. I googled the hell out of it. I looked at videos and read forums and post after post after post. I tried out a couple different turntables. I tried an old uh, JVC and I tried an old Dual, took them both back. And long story short, once again, because this is an epic story that could go on forever, I ended up buying a, uh, a Pioneer, uh, an old Pioneer. I don't have it yet. I actually just ordered it the other day and I'll tell you my secret where I ordered it from. I ordered it from the Goodwill site. Yeah. Did you know that the Goodwill offers an auction site? Yeah. it's. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Shopgoodwill.com. They do sell some pro audio gear there, but they also sell cameras and stereos and, you know, anything you can name. It'll probably be up there except, you know, tires and cereal. Although the tires, they may have tires. It's kind of like, a, you know, what, Costco? Right. Anyhow, I ordered a uh, PL560. I got it for a great price, uh, in my opinion. I got it for $342, and I'm going to have a guy on Etsy that I met. He's going to redo it for me. He's going to redo the plinth. 
you know, the little platform in a nice wood color because it's, God, it's butt ugly. It's like, it's this awful gray color. And uh, he's going to redo it for me. And in the end, I'll spend about 550 bucks, which was essentially my, my initial budget. So I'm looking forward to that. So that's my story. Uh, that's really all I had to tell you about, Nam and Vinyl. And I'll share pictures of the turntable when it shows up. And uh, I will see you at Nam. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Cameron Webb here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So we are connected from our mutual friend, Mike Cuddy, who's a great guy. And we originally met at NAM. I want to say two years ago. Yes, it was. And so it's taken me a little while to get around to getting you on the show. <laughs> so apologies. <laughs> 
I take the blame for for not being proactive and and asking you. So ah. we're good. Well, so let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Grew up Newport Beach, California. I lived there most of my life. Went to college at Chico State, and that's where I met Mike Cuddy. That's right. The Mike Cuddy's connection is I joined a band with him, and he played drums and I played bass, and we played in a band for about four years together up there. And that's where we also, I also got involved with a radio station called KCSC, their local college radio station, which Mike was also a DJ there. So that was an introduction to the music scene at Chico. What led you to, to going to Chico State? You know what? As a kid, I played in high school bands my whole life, and then... When I went to college, my parents were pushing for different colleges, and this was just a good community sort of college where it was it was all college, no city or anything like that, and I really liked the atmosphere of that. And I hate to say it, but it was also a big party school at the time, too, and I was playing in bands and wanted to play more music, and I figured it was a, an opportunity just to keep doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, Chico does have that reputation, doesn't it, as a big party school? It does, and here's the thing. You just have to learn how to... I guess the first two years, I would say I... I partaked in the partying and then I realized I got bored. So then I started focusing on my schoolwork and I actually, I went from getting C's to getting A's and B's, which I never even got in high school. So you just got to refocus your path really. And to take it back even further, what led you to audio? Where did audio become something of an interest to you? I've always loved music and I was interested in the process. And when I was in high school, I'd always go to shows and and I listened to music and there was a, a local studio kind of close by called Saturation. And it did like a lot of basically all the indie stuff that was coming around Orange County or Costa Mesa. And there was kind of a big music scene. It was like, we always thought it would be the, a Seattle scene. This is before Seattle though. And I would actually sneak in the studio or I would sit by the door and I'd listen to them mixing something or tracking things. And I just, I loved sounds and I loved that whole thing. I loved music and eventually just kept playing music. And I thought I would do music for a living as a musician. But then eventually after college, I realized, hey, I'm not making any money at this. Maybe there's another outlet in music that I can make money. And I started working in studios saying, hey, maybe I can make a living doing this kind of stuff. After Chico State, where did your journey take you from there? So I left Chico State, got a couple kind of no good jobs for a little while. And I had a friend and he's an important part of my whole story is his name is Steve Boffman. And Steve Boffman, he's a big mix engineer and engineer and producer in the hip hop world. And he had worked at the studio called Larrabee Sound in West Hollywood, two locations at the time. And he said, hey, you don't have a job? Do you want a job? And I said, sure. He goes, there's a runner job open. I'll give you the interview and see what happens. So I go to get an interview from this person there and she didn't hire me. And right away, my friend Steve, who was only an assistant at the time, went back to this receptionist and said, hey, that'll probably be the best assistant you ever have. You need to rethink what your choice of what you just did. You need to hire that guy. Got a phone call and I got a job as a runner because of Steve, basically. Wow. And it was it was great for, for me because Steve was a year ahead of me. He went to Chico State as well. And he had already gone through being a runner and now he was an assistant. So anytime I had free time, I would just pick his brain or... I'd go into the control room with him and he'd show me tricks. And there's so much I learned on the, in the early days from Steve. And I mean, he was working with Dr. Dre and Snoop and Ice Cube and Madonna and huge like pop stars at the time. And I would go in there and set up vocal chains with him or watch how he would EQ or compress or, or just, just hang out with him and talk. And I had a good friendship with Steve. How old were you guys then? So it would have been just out of college. I guess I'm going to be like 
around 25 was that first runner job. And Steve was only an assistant at that point. He was an assistant, yes. That takes a lot of balls to come to as an assistant, in my opinion, to come to the, the person hiring and saying, you just made a huge mistake. You got to hire this guy. I, I always look up to Steve and what he does. And the receptionist, by growing up in Orange County, I lived in Orange County at the time. And this was up in, in Hollywood. And she just thought that I was kind of a flake and there's no way that I'd make the drive or no way that I would move up there. But she was totally wrong because immediately when I had the opportunity for the job, I either made the drive or I or I slept on couches or I just I house sat a couple times. So I just found a way to do it. So once I got hired there, I was never a problem. Like I always showed up. There was never late or anything like that. Do you have a recollection of what your mindset was back at that point in time? Were you a driven person? Were you just, were you hungry to get deeper into the studio? When I went to college, I didn't want, I didn't want to learn. I just wanted to hang out and have fun. That's all I really wanted to do. But by the time I graduated college, I wanted to, I, I want to say this is I wanted my parents to be proud of me. So I wanted to find things that they were, they were proud of. And when I got this job at a big studio, you had Madonna showing up, like I said, Dr. Dre, and you had these superstars that were all over the radio. So there was a credibility to the place I was at. And at that time, when I got the runner job, I'm like, this is a terrible job. All I do is get uh, food plates in the morning and then I just do runs. I get food, whether it's getting whatever restaurant they want to go to, that's all I would do all day long. And it's, it's just not really a fun job. So I basically said to myself, I want to spend the least amount of time being a runner. So I'm going to be the best runner in the world. And I'm going to work so hard. But what I'm going to do in my free time is I'm going to sit in the tech office and I'm going to read manuals. Because at the time, they had SSLs there. So I had to learn how to use an SSL and the automation. So I'd sit there and I'd read manuals all day long in between breaks. And then I would go on my runs and I'd come back to the manuals. And I befriended a tech there named Mark Gruber. And he basically said, whatever you need to know, I'll help teach you. He said, you should read these chapters and do these things. And I would do that. And then I'd go downstairs before or after work and I would try out these things on the computer. And basically, I was very driven to not be a runner at the time, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. I thought I would just be an engineer. I never thought I would be an engineer and a, and a producer as well. But that was, my whole goal was get out of running. Let's move forward. Let's get to an assistant and then let's get to an engineer and then let's be successful in that sort of route. But I, there's also the uncertainty of what you're actually going to be because you don't, you're, I'm just learning what all these titles and what all these jobs are at that time. That's interesting. You, you hated that job so much. You, you decided to kick ass at it and be the best runner possible so they could gain, gain trust in you. You know, it's, there's one story. So Heavy D was in and I was actually, I think I just become an assistant at the time. It was one of my first assisting jobs. And Heavy D had a producer named Tony Dofat. And uh, he did all the Heavy D records. And he, he shows up at the studio one morning and he walks in the bathroom and he goes, oh my God, who did that to the toilet seat there? And I went in there. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? And he goes, you know what? That runner that should have cleaned that mess up right there, that guy will never be a good assistant. Because if you don't know how to clean a toilet, there's no way you're going to know how to plug in a vocal chain or mix a record or do anything like that. He goes, that runner should just quit right now because it'll be no good. And it, and that really stuck in me because I realized that if I was a great runner or a great assistant, that meant I could be a great producer or engineer. But if you're a lousy runner, who would want to give you the responsibility of producing or engineering a record? Nobody. That stuck with me my whole life. So when I see people come to me and I see them be slackers and like 
plugging in cables, but doing a poor job. I just, I write those people off and I say, you know what? They're never going to go anywhere. They'll do this for a little while, but they'll burn out because people don't want to work with people that are lazy and people that you can't appreciate your climb to get to where you're trying to get. It seems to me that there's not as much opportunity for runner jobs presented to a lot of people. And if there are, they're, they're few and far between. Would you agree or disagree with that? I'm so confused when a kid comes to me and they say, hey, how do I get to where you are? I want to do what you're doing. And I go, okay, here's how I did it. And then they say, well, where can I get that job? And I say, I don't really know. Because there's big studios, a studio called NRG, and people show up as interns, not even as runners. And they don't even have a real job. And they, they sit there and they, they do all these things that a runner would have done at the time. But there's even no, there's no promise that in a year or two, they'll even move up to a runner or to an assistant. So I think there's, because the bigger studios have, are slowly disappearing and, and the middle-sized ones, and there's all these home studios, yet I don't know where these opportunities are. And for me, my biggest problem is I have a studio. I know how to run it. I'm very efficient. I know how to plug everything in. My studio is set up like a Larrabee or NRG or, or those places where anyone could walk in the room who is a competent engineer and I wouldn't have to tell them what to do. They could just plug and play and go. So for me to tell a runner or an assistant how to plug in a vocal chain would take me longer to describe it than for me to physically do these tasks. So I often, I don't need these people and I can't rely on these people that are going to be flakes because if I got a session at 9 a.m., I get there at six and I set all my stuff up and I'm ready to roll. But if that person shows up 15 minutes, 30 minutes late, it just throws off the whole schedule. So I often don't bring in people like that because I don't trust most people, unfortunately. Yeah, that is interesting where there's the desire from the person coming up, but the avenues just don't exist in the same capacity. So the learning can take place online for a lot of people and, and to some degree, and that's fine, but that responsibility, that attention to detail, that doesn't get taught online. The biggest problem I see is people go on their computer and then they, they have the same program I have. So they write songs and they engineer things and then they call themselves producers. And I listen to these tracks they have and they don't sound very good. Technically, they're not good mistakes. It just, it just sounds like a demo, but they they go to the world and say, oh, I'm this big producer, you should hire me. And those kind of people, it, it's sad for me because I spent a lot of time watching real producers, real engineers for years and years, plugging in crazy 3348 track machines, 24 track, Pro Tools rigs, all these elaborate setups. And these people, they really just, they're, they're not even producers or engineers, they're just recording people. They're where, they, where anyone can take a microphone and plug it into a computer and record. It's a piece of cake. I could teach any kid to do that. So for me, I came up watching professionals doing this and I have a really professional side of me. And part of what I have learned over these years is besides the technical side of things is if I have a session, you set up early and you set up before anyone gets there. You test your mics, you, you go out there. So that very first word that person says can be captured. When you see an inexperienced engineer or producer, they show up and there's no microphone set up. And you're like, wait a second. I thought we had a session today and there's no microphone hole. Let, let me set it up. And you wait for your half hour or an hour. I always look at it this way. What if that was Michael Jackson walking in the room and he only had three minutes to do his thing? You just failed and you just lost what you could have had. Once an artist has to wait and has to be impatient, everything goes downhill from there. 
So you have to capture every moment that happens, even if it's bad. You got, you have to be so prepared. And this is where me having to work for big clients in the early stages got me set up for that. So now I can work with a kid who doesn't know anything, but I'll set up two hours ahead of time. So if I get the first bit of magic, I, I want to capture it. You can teach techniques, you can teach signal flow, but what you can't teach online is that that day-to-day being in it, being around people, learning what works and what doesn't with people. How do you teach somebody that, hey, you got to show up at 6 a.m. to set up a big setup for a 9 a.m. session so that they walk in and you can just go, okay, we're recording. You can make some tweaks, but we're already recording. Yeah. And I'm very proud of myself with this because I have, luckily I have a studio and I'm able to, if I don't have other clients in, I kind of leave a setup going. I leave a lot of microphones up. I leave a lot of things. So when a drummer comes in and he's like, oh man, we got to spend six hours getting tones. And I go, well, I already got my levels. So the moment you starting hitting drums, I'm EQing, compressing. Within a short amount of time, I'm going to say 15, 20 minutes, more or less, half an hour, I'm dialed in and it sounds good and they're ready to go. Because I never had to test the line. I never had to, f- to find a cable that, that was not plugged in. I've already done all that work. So for me, those people come like, wow, this is so efficient and it sounds so good so fast. It's like, well, I've chosen these microphones. I've chosen all these things. The reality of it is that I heard years ago that Sylvia Massey was working on a Smashing Pumpkins record. And she brought in a, a different band the day before, set up the whole setup, with a different band in there just to get the levels. So when, I think it was Smashing Pumpkins, when they came in, they could just plug and play. And I always took that to heart and said, you know what, I'm gonna do that in my own way every single day. And that's that's what I do. And people really appreciate that efficientness because they can just be creative right out the gates. They're never sitting strumming a guitar for an hour, like there's something wrong with the cable. It's like, no, there's not. I did that yesterday, we're good. I, I will say this, I'm seeing this more and more and more where commercial studios as well as private studios of producers and engineers are becoming places where you can just walk in and get going immediately. Mm-hmm. There's whether you have an instrument with you or not, you know, many of them have instruments already set up. And so maybe there's a drum set set up and you can swap out the pieces you want, but essentially the mics are already in place, the signal chain's already in place. It's just a matter of adjusting based on the player and that ability to get going super fast. I'm seeing that more more and more, at least in the Bay Area, I'm seeing it. Yep. You walk in and you're like, oh, you're already ready to go. Oh, fantastic. Yep. So, <laughs> so you're, you've got this runner job, you're kicking ass. At what point did the transition take place? So basically as a runner, I'm sitting there getting food, doing all this stuff. When you get there, there's other runners that are, are above the ladder on you. They got there first. So they're going to have the first shot at this. And there was two or three ahead of me. And at one point, they went to the top runner and they said, hey, we got a little session in here. It's just one day. It's vocals. Do you want this session? And the guy said no. And instantly, I, I went to the studio manager's office and said, I'll do it. And she's like, well, you're not in the line. I said, but I'll do it. So I got that. And from that, I got more and more jobs. And I met a guy named Butch Smalls. And Butch Smalls used to be the percussionist for Parliament Funkadelic. And I'm a huge Funkadelic fan. So instantly, I'm asking him questions about Funkadelic and his career and his life. And and he liked that I was excited about the things he did. And while I was still a runner, I assisted him once. And then 
He called the next week. I said, hey, I got another session. I want Cameron. And the studio manager is like, well, he's he's not an assistant. Like, he just did that because it was a fill-in. And he goes, that's the only guy I'll work with. So bring in Cameron or I'm not working. And I was like, what? So all of a sudden, I was an assistant for a couple weeks on these records. It might have been for the gang-related soundtrack that Ice Cube did because he was one of the, he was the percussionist and like one of the producers. So that's kind of how I started. Like all of a sudden, now I was an assistant and a runner at the same time. And then when I would get another when another client would come in and they liked you, they would request you back. So all of a sudden, I'm slowly becoming less and less of a runner until eventually they're like, okay, you're now officially an assistant because people were were asking for me to come back because I had a personal connection with them. The funny thing is one of those sessions was the longest session I ever did. We started on Friday at 11 a.m. and we finished Monday at 11 a.m. We never stopped working. We were there for 50 some odd hours, whatever it was. I didn't know how to use the J9000 at the time, but I was learning it. So when Butch would ask me, hey man, I need to do this, I'd get the manual and I'd figure it out. And it it might've been six in the morning, three in the morning. And I was willing to to stay up all night and figure these things out and work for 50 some hours in a row. And I made a lot of mistakes in those 52 hours, but he just saw my effort and, and my willingness to try. So it was like, you just jump in the pool and you work really hard. But one thing I do want to say is that as much as I didn't know these things, I never lied about it. I always said, hey, you know what? I'm going to have to look this up or I'm going to have to figure this out. Because one thing that I see with, with other pe- like younger people sometimes is they will say, oh, I know how to do all that. But then they don't know how to do it. And you throw them in that situation and then it's just a fail. So you have to be careful how far you dive in and, and, and if you can dig your way out. Luckily, I had resources. I had that tech that I talked about earlier that I could ask the questions. I had Steve Boffman that I could call at six in the morning and be like, Steve, I don't know how to cut a piece from the, the SSL. And then he'd be like, oh, this is what you do. And then we would fix the problem. So I had, I had resources to help me get through it sometimes. That's a fine line between being gutsy and diving in and, and, and showing confidence versus transparency and honesty when you, yeah. when you truly don't know. Yeah, but honesty is the most important thing. Whether it was honesty with Butch or with myself, I really, I had to tell him when I didn't know how to do things, but he would be like, suck it up. Let's do this. Let's, you better figure it out fast because I'm waiting for you and I would figure it out. So <laughs> you got to, I don't know, to me, honesty is so important. Even nowadays talking to people or dealing with people, like I'm very straight and honest with them, sometimes to a flaw. I work with a group called Pennywise. And when I, I sent a mix to Randy, the bass player from Pennywise one day, and he he in my notes said, if you have any changes, let me know. He called me on the phone and said, hey, you're going to let me make changes? And I'm like, it's your band. I'll change whatever you want. He says, next time send an email, here's the mix, I'm done, and I'll just sign off on it because I trust you, I believe in you. But for me as a person, I wanted to have the honesty of like, I want your art, your craft to be what you're searching for, Randy. And it was funny because he, he says, we hire you because you're, you listen every day. You're a professional at what you do. We don't hire you so we can fix, your, fix the problems because we're going to screw everything up, as he would always say to me. And it's like, sometimes he would, but other times he would help me. So I don't know. I was, I've always honest to a flaw with these artists because I want them to trust me. And I never want any sort of deceit or anything, or, and I don't want them to come back to me and say, 
oh man, he, he lied or he cheated or did this. I, I would never want that ever. Yeah. In many businesses, there's a lot of bullshit and bluster. And, yep. and I think when you take the approach that you're taking, I, I, I think people appreciate that. They do. And here's the thing. We got to sell ourselves. So I understand a little bit, but you, I'm not a sales guy, even though sometimes I have to sell myself to these people, but I don't want to be that sales guy that just is trying to get the sell. Like that, that does no good for me in my career. It actually, it just hurts me because then if I sell this product or sell this record to someone, but I don't feel it and I'm not working my hardest on them, I'm not going to get the next record. And I'm also, they're not going to say good things about me. So, so you got to be careful about that. How long did you stay at Larrabee? I was there about three years, maybe a little bit more. And it was a situation where I started working at Larrabee, just so you know, is there's a producer named Terry Date. And at the time, he had just done all the Pantera, White Zombie, and he just started doing Deftones records. And I loved the way he was making records. He made the best sounding records of that time for metal acts or, or, or hard groups. And it was pre-Pro Tools that he was doing all this stuff that sounded just phenomenal. And I wanted to learn tricks from him. So that's why I started there. And I ended up meeting him and becoming friends and worked on a handful of records with him. And at one point, he had an engineer, Steve Durkee, that was helping him out. who used to be Prince's engineer. He comes to me and says, Cameron, I know you're not big into the hip-hop world, but there's a studio called NRG. And they do all the rock. They're doing corn and all sorts of other like big bands. He says, if you want a job there, they just got a 9,000 and no one knows how to run it. And you know how to run a 9,000. And I said, that would be awesome. He says, just call this number and you pretty much have a job. So I basically went there, had an interview. They were basically hiring me on the spot because they needed someone to run this J9,000. So that's at that point, that's when I moved from one assistant at Larrabee to an assistant at NRG Studios. This is around 1998. At off time spent reading that manual and doing the, those epic long sessions really paid off there. Oh, it was huge. Yeah, I mean, because the 9000 was new at this time. There weren't many in, in LA and Larrabee had the first two. So when NRG got that, it was like, yeah, all that paid off so much. That extra time I would sit in that tech office and talk to Mark or talk to Steve, like, because that's the world I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in harder. I wanted to be in rock records or punk records or metal records. Those are the records I really wanted to make. But I cut my teeth on hip hop records with huge producers. Like Dr. Dre would come in and I would watch him track, mix, write and do all this stuff. And at the time, not being a huge hip hop fan, I, I was watching the, the top of, of hip, the hip hop world make records. And I had a lot of respect for that. And I learned tons at that time. I learned drum machines. I learned syncing tape machines and things that you, you don't have to use as much anymore. But I learned a ton of things at that time. I mean, the sessions I had, I mean, I had a Michael Jackson session that had two 3348 tape machines, two analog 24 track tape machines, and an early Pro Tools rig all hooked up. So it's a hundred and some odd tracks coming to a console it was my job to set this up before he showed up. It was a it was a full day elaborate sort of setup. But those are the experiences where I had to learn at the top top level of the industry. And it prepared me for so much more later on. Wow. I just got nervous thinking about that setup. It was wild. I mean, the console wasn't even big enough. We had to use the small faders on the SSL 
for the Pro Tools rig in one of the tape machines. That's how wild it was. <laughs> it's insane. Think about that. At that time, there was no in the box. It was all coming to a console. And it, we had to have a rough for him to sing to. It's just like a synchronization nightmare. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's been doing this for a long time knows how difficult it is to get all that running and locked properly. Yeah, that's that's huge. So Larrabee, NRG, run me through your NRG experience. NRG was a great place. I was there at, at a great time. If you look at the new metal world, we had records, Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory, Lit, Place in the Sun. We had Limp Bizkit's Significant Other. We had Orgy. We had the first Papa Roach record, Incubus as well. All these things happened in this two-year period or three-year period that I was at that studio. And there was a time when I'd listen to K-Rock on the way home and 70% of the artists on K-Rock had come out of NRG, had done a record there. And it was it was kind of mind-blowing to work on a song and two weeks later it was on the radio. And that was just it was just the hub of all that kind of new metal music in that time, right around 2000 and a little bit before that. So... I was an assistant there for a couple years, and I engineered a couple projects with Jay Baumgartner, who's the owner. 30 Seconds to Mars, we worked on, it was actually, would have been their first record, but I don't think they released the songs we worked on. So it was a good, and it was a wild time. And the funny thing is, when I got a job there, from being at Larrabee, they had all these SSLs. NRG had Neves and had an SSL. I'd never seen a Neve before. So I instantly... When I got the job, I said, well, I don't want to just sit in the SSL room. I want to work on Neves too. And they just threw me in there. And I just figured out how to use a Neve from my experience from an SSL and just jumped in, jumped in the pond again and, and figured it out. And then became, I'm going to say, one of the top engineers there for a, a good good amount of time. Yeah, you really had the run of the place, it sounds like. It was good. I mean, it was, it was amazing projects coming in and it was a great place to work. I mean top level of that kind of music. I mean, when it was early Pro Tools, so people were just starting to edit and tune vocals. And I'd work with these engineers. One, one's name was James Murray. And he taught me how to edit drums and tune vocals. And we would sit there until, who knows, three in the morning, four in the morning. And we'd be working on a Papa Roach song. And he'd say, I want you to tune vocals on this song for me. And I'd tune it. And I'd tune it terribly. And then he'd, he'd listen to him and be like, oh man, I got to redo this whole thing. <laughs> so then he would start over and he would redo the whole thing. And I would sit there and watch him and be like, oh, that's what you got to do. And same thing with drum editing. So the amazing thing about this is I was working on these big records as an assistant. You got to remember, this is an assistant. And I had my friend Mike Cuddy got a job at DigiDesign. He said, hey, I might have an extra Pro Tools rig that I can loan you sometimes. So he would loan it to me and I would use this Pro Tools rig. I'd make indie records for artists and they'd be these low budget indie records, but I would edit drums and tune vocals. And at the time, there was no money to, to do all that stuff on indie records. It, only the big projects had that. So I kind of like jumped ahead of a few people at that time because people would listen to my records and say, I love the way the vocals sound on this record. I want a, I want a record like that. They're like, but it's probably too expensive. And I'd be like, I can do it for you. And so I was kind of hitting the indie world with major kind of production, which which was was very helpful at the start for me because my record sounded slicker and the singer sounded better. The drummer sounded better because I knew how to do it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as 
Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. All right, so in these periods, Larrabee, NRG, and all the stuff you're learning, my big question, were you surviving? So in the beginning, I literally, I had a friend who lived in Marina del Rey, and I would sleep on his couch whenever I worked. So, and if I had two days off, I'd go back down to Orange County and sleep at my parents' house. So at the time, I mean, I was making 190 bucks a week. That, that would have been like a 40-hour runner job. When you became an assistant, you're still, at the time, I was probably making $7 an hour. But when you had overtime, which you, you had every day, that's where I started to make enough money to, to make a living and actually put, not a lot of money in the bank, but just put a little bit. So I was never, I was never broke when I had those jobs, but I never had excess money. And if I ever did get a check that was a better check, I would buy a piece of gear. I would say, well, I got an extra $300. I'm going to buy an Effectron for $200. Or... I just made a thousand dollars. I'm gonna go buy a distressor, and I would buy gear over all these years, and I still own those pieces of gear that that I bought at that time. So I was making a living barely, but I was happy and I was excited and I was working on good projects. I had a girlfriend at the time, which I married, and that was hard because I did spend a lot of hours. I mean, the Larrabee days were. I mean, I spent. I had a couple hundred hour weeks over the time, which was a lot of work and I just found a way. But a funny thing is when I got the job at NRG, they took a Christmas picture at NRG one year and you looked at the picture and there's 30 people in this, all the runners, assistants, everyone who worked there and everyone was pale white. And I was the only tan person. And this, and the, the, this, the studio manager said, what's wrong with this picture? Why are you tan? And I said, well, I live in Venice beach and I surf every morning from six to 8 a.m. And then I go to a session at 9 a.m. So I actually get sun every, not every day, but most mornings. So I wanted to live a life too. And you just have to find time to do the things you want to do outside of being an engineer or producer or whatever it is. And that, that was important to me. Uh, you know, I've never surfed. And I'm curious if, is surfing, I assume it, it works some muscles in your body, right? So there's, that's a bit of a workout, right? Oh, it's a total workout. If there's waves, it's exhausting. Yeah. You're paddling. I mean, you're paddling for an hour, two hours, up and down. You're, you're moving a ton. Yeah, it's very active. Stomach, legs, I'm sure. Everything. Yeah, everything's yep. getting a workout. Yep. Let me bring it back to, to NRG for a second. You're surviving, you're working in a job you love, you're kicking ass at it, and you're doing okay financially and health-wise, it seems, at that point, especially when you're the only tan person in the Christmas <laughs> picture of a studio shot. That's hilarious. Yeah. Where did you take it from there? I just looked at, as an assistant, I said, how do I get out of this? How do I become an engineer? And that was that was the biggest question I posed for a long time. And what are these other people doing? And the industry was changing a little bit right then. And I and I didn't know how, if I just quit NRG and said, I'm going to be an engineer. Well, who am I going to be an en engineer for? I'm not working for a specific producer. And most producers aren't always working every day. 
So I had to find a way to do that. And my solution was this, is I'm going to build a studio with a friend and I'm going to have the studio where if someone says, hey, I've got $100, can you record me? I said, cool, let's let's record you. I've got $10,000. Okay, I can record you. And basically what it was, I was searching for engineering work for other producers this whole time. But if I had in-between time, I could bring a, a local band in and I could record them or I could try to develop a band to try to get them picked up to a bigger label. And the studio I had, it didn't cost a lot of money. It was, I mean, I had a Mackie in there and uh, 57s and a couple mics. And like I said, I'd been collecting things. So I had enough to collect to actually build a room where I could do some sort of work. And that was, I felt like my next stage, like, okay, I don't want to be a studio owner because the funny thing is the era that I came in, studio owners just lost money every day. It was, it was a terrible business to be in. I saw that and I talked to the owner of both those owners. And so I didn't want to own a studio. I just wanted to engineer and produce. But by having a studio, I could cut my costs so I could sometimes make more money because I could charge for a studio and for myself, but I also had to spend money to make money. So that was kind of my way to move out of being an assistant was building a little studio. Did you feel stuck as an assistant? You know, the reason why I quit assisting was... I had gotten a couple indie records for a small label called Lobster Records. There was a band called Over It, and there was a band called Staring Back, and there was a band called Park. And the Park record, I recorded this Park record, and Over It came and visited, and they said, wow, this sounds so good. Will you do our record? And the label said, yeah, we'll just put it right after this record. So I got that record. And then I had asked NRG for two months off to do these two records. So when I finished the two months... The label came back to me one more time and said, I got a band called Staring Back. Will you record them right after? So now I had three months worth of work. And NRG came to me and said, no, you can't take any more time off. You're too important. And if you try to take the time off, I'm going to fire you. And she was actually testing me. She was testing to see how much I wanted to be an assistant there. But I didn't like the way she did it. She was threatening me. So I said, fine, I guess I'm fired. And I hung up the phone on her. And I'm like, wow, that's the biggest choice I ever made in my life. I basically just quit my my day job and I'm going to go independent at this moment. And I was scared to death. And 10 minutes later, she calls me back and she says, okay, let's be honest. That record's going to take you another month. Okay, we need you back in another month. And at that moment, I, I stood up for myself, my first time ever. And I said, you know what? You just fired me. I'm not coming back. Thank you for your opportunities but I'm done. I, like If you're going to put me through this, I'm just going to walk away. And then I hung up the phone on her and I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? But it was the start of just saying, just throwing me out there and saying, you know what? I'm just going to do my best. One thing that I, I'm proud of is I never thought like, oh man, I'll just work at McDonald's or, or I'll do some Starbucks or whatever if this isn't working. I always just hustled and said, you know what? If I had to go clean a studio bathroom again. I'll go do that as long as I'm in the studio. But I never had to do that. I just I, I just kept searching for those records, those small projects and helping people out and being good to bands and managers and labels. And, and they kept coming back to me saying, hey, we need this, this, and this. Because there's people out there that need these products made. And that's what, what I do. I want to drill down into that a little bit. You always hustled for the work, as you said. Oh, I still do today. Oh my God, I hustle so hard. How do you do that? What are your, what, how do you, yeah. 
<laughs> what what is considered in in your mind? What is considered hustling? If I tell all my secrets, everyone's going to do this. <laughs> we'll just make a pay, a, a paid video and people can download it. It'll 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 take ten minutes. The crazy thing, the obvious is like, show up, go to shows. If you want to work with a band, show up at that show and shake their hand or meet them. Even if you don't know this band, find a way backstage, sneak backstage, do whatever you can, but make yourself known that you were there and that you like this artist. Because a lot of times, it's more so now than I think then, is I'll show up at a show and I'll shake a hand, I'll meet someone and they'll be like, oh man, I love this one record you did, Tim Armstrong. I met Tim Armstrong a couple months ago. I go to his studio, walk up and he's like, oh man, I love your work. And I'm like, you love my work? I love what you're doing. I didn't even know you knew who I was. And for someone like that to know who I was, it helped that I showed up and I just shook his hand. And you just have to pursue work. You have to pursue every avenue. You have to build relationships. You have to be good to people because I might record some kid that's nine years old. And then later on, I realized that that could be the, the drummer for some huge band's kid. And they like the way I recorded. And it's like, wait, now that huge band comes to me and said, you did a great job with my kid. I want to hire you for this job. You never know who that person's going to be, no matter where you are or what you're doing. So the hustling is showing up, talking to people. If you want a job, try to get a hold of them. Find their manager, find the label, find someone that knows someone. Go to a show, sneak into a show. Whatever you can do, show interest. And in any job, people love when you show interest in what they're doing. And all of a sudden, if you're good at what they do, they're going to hire you for these jobs. I like Make that. sense? Totally makes sense. Let me ask you this. This is getting into the minutia. So let's say, you know, you gave the example of doing something for somebody's kid, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do in those situations are truly challenging? Like the people involved are challenging personalities. How do you maintain patience and stay focused on getting the job done in their best interest? So that later on down the line, they can say, you know what? I was an asshole and this guy was really cool to me the whole time. You got to bite your lip every single day. I've had people sit on the back couch and watch me work with artists. And they're like, you're the most patient human I've ever met in my life. Because these people are trying to get something and they don't often know how to do it. And you're guiding them towards this path. And you just have to be patient. And sometimes you got to let them make mistakes. It's funny, more recently, like I've worked with, I feel like I've worked with some better artists and bigger artists, and sometimes they're very opinionated. And I'll get into this thing where I know the solution to get from point A to point B. It could take us five minutes, but they're sitting there and it's taking them three hours to get from point A to B. And oftentimes they want to go that course. They don't want you to tell them how to go that course. So you have to just sit back and watch the train. I don't want to say watch the car crash because I, I would never want that thing, but you have to let them be artists and let them be who they are. And I've gotten lectured by a manager saying, just let the artist be first. I know you know how to do this, but they want to figure this out. And you have to, it's funny because I, I want to tell specific stories on, the, on this topic because some of those artists might not like that. So I don't know. I kind of strayed a little bit from what you've asked. No, you know, what you're saying is, is perfectly valid. One of the things that I, I'm late in coming to the, the realization over is that sometimes you just have to stop trying to be the one in control, the one in charge yes. and just like sit back and let it happen. And I think it's only because of my children I'm realizing that. Yeah. I just, I work with a lot of artists that 
are artists and want to want to make a product or do something. I'm not working with as many people that are saying, write a song for me. I'm going to perform it and I'm going to go home and I don't care. Like I'm working with people that are building it from the core. And those people, I I want to capture who they are. I want to capture the individuals. I want to capture the Mike Ness of today or or the, the Chester Bennington of today. Like those people, I don't want to force the Cameron Webb on those people. And a lot of newer producers or songwriters, that's what they do. And they, they think that's right. And I'll watch the process happen and I'll get kind of saddened because that's part of why some music gets homogenized. And all of a sudden, all the songs on the radio are that same song. It's like, oh, wait, the same guy just wrote that for all those artists. That artist doesn't have an identity. And that makes me so sad. I want to hear... I want to hear what, like, what I'll often do is with an artist, I'll say, show me what you got. And then I'll let them do it. And it might not be good, but I'll let them do it a couple times until they've found something interesting. And then I'll grab that and I'll say, that's where your magic is happening. Let's work this course. I won't say, sing this exact melody for me and do this exact timing because I don't want it to be the stock thing that's going on. I want the flaw. The, the characteristics that, that I can't build, that the, the average Joe can't build, I want that to shine through. I want the uniqueness. I want to see uh, the new corn or whatever it is where he does some crazy scats that is, is what makes the whole process cool. Like, I want to see those people exist. So going back, energy, you've hung up the phone twice. Did the phone ring again to, to call nope. you back to energy? Nope. Okay. Didn't go back to energy. Never went back. I did go back to do records there, to engineer, to produce. I did a couple Motorhead records there and other projects, the Aquabats, other bands that I worked with because I love that studio. I love the sound. I love the, the, the comfort of that studio. So yes, I did work there, but not never again as an assistant. And have you since run into the person that you hung up on the phone with? Oh yeah. I still know her. She knows me. She's, she's a hard ass. And <laughs> She still manages studios and she does it the same way. And, you know, we just butted heads and I just had to pull back and live my life. You know what I mean? I didn't think about what I was doing. Like she was booking me on every single session, seven days a week. Like every session was, would be 20 hours. And then the next morning you had to show up at, at 7 a.m. And, and I just finished at 4 a.m. And I would get booked. There was never like, hey, Cameron, take a break, take a week off. Oh, you're going to get married? all right, we'll give you a week. It's like, what? <laughs> like, no, like I, <laughs> you can be fine without me. And, and I just, you know, seven days a week, it's tiring after a while. And you're like, after two or three years, you're like, I'm going to go insane. So no, I mean, and I respect her for who she is and how she ran that business. Cause she kept those huge clients in there for a long period of time, which is very impressive. So you got out of that and, you haven't looked back since, have you? I haven't looked back. I just, I'm always looking forward. I'm always trying to grow. I'm always trying to find newer artists. And I'm also trying to help out the artists that I'm working with or have worked with to, to get more projects with those same people, especially the ones that I like and that, that I enjoy spending time with. So you've stayed freelance since the hanging up of energy. Yep. 100%. Wow. 100%. And then I, op I opened up a second studio called Maple Studios and I've had that for 2000, since 2002 and it's more of a private studio, but it is a public studio and 
it, I say it's private because I do most of my projects are here and I'm usually fairly busy. So I don't have a lot of time and I don't really want the one-offs of people at Guitar Center looking at a flyer saying, hey, I'm going to book a studio for 50 bucks an hour. I, I don't want those kind of, I don't want to search for that really. It's too much work for not enough reward. Yeah. Tell me about the lessons you've learned from having your own places, including the one you're at now. I don't know. I mean, when I built this studio, I had been working at two huge studios and I knew how everything was wired. And I knew that if I could have my studio set up like a professional studio, it would make my life and anyone who wanted to rent the place so easy. So I didn't, I never had problems on the technical side because I was very smart of getting it done right the first time. But what I did do is I made sure there were extra things like speaker lines or instrument lines that would go to rooms so I could be very efficient in, I'm big into like having like guitar heads and control rooms and then the cabinets, a faraway closet. So you can turn them up on 10 and you can dial your tone and listen to the speakers. So I made sure all these things were set up. I mean, here's the thing about a studio. It's, it's definitely, it's, it doesn't make a bunch of money. It helps me sometimes, like I said, gain a little bit of extra money what it more or less does is it gives me it gives me an opportunity to make a record that's a top level record for less money and i don't have to go to a studio and spend 50 70% of my budget and and hand the money to someone else i can take that and i can acquire new gear i can pay the bills you know what i mean i can do all those things so i mean i i don't really have any there's no pluses or minuses of it. There's just, it, it just is what it is. It's, it's become where I work. Yeah. When somebody comes to you, do you have one charge for you and a separate charge for the studio? Or is it just like one price all in? I do different kinds of jobs and some jobs are way more intensive and some jobs are not. So my scale kind of leans more towards if it's a lot of work, a lot of maintenance, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, those are ones where I'm asking for more money. If it's just a simple like, some kid goes, I got 300 bucks and that's all I have for the next six months. I do those projects for those 300 bucks if I have a day off, if I have the time. I think the bigger the project is, the more stress, the more pressure. If it's a bigger label, you have, there's a lot more writing on it. So those are things where you ask for more money because you need it. Because you you can't, <laughs> the, the, big, the big superstar compared to the kid they need different things yeah. and you have to be able, have the opportunity to be able to give them the extras. So your place really provides you that flexibility to handle everything from the $300 gigs to the 10,000 and up gigs. Yeah, I, I can do anything here. Any artist in the world could come here and be comfortable. Uh-huh. That's a big thing. And this place you have now, is this a place you rent or do you own the building? No, I rent a, a building. It's like a 1300 square foot building and has a drum room, vocal room, guitar closet. It has different rooms. It has a lobby. I have a nice Trident ADC console in here. So I have a lot of inputs. I have everything I need. But yeah, it, I rent it because when I first opened a studio, I didn't have enough money to buy a building. And even now I don't have enough money to buy a building because property is really expensive in Orange County where I live. Because we live in California and it's prohibitively expensive. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I wish at that time I could have bought a building, but I didn't have the resources to do it at that time. Yeah, I know. When real estate was cheap, 
I, I still to this day think, oh man, if I had been a, someone who f- managed their finances better, I could have been in a lot better position now. It's interesting what you bring up right there because I think of those things now, but at the time I was just leaving NRG or wherever it was, I didn't think about those sort of things. I just wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be a producer. I wanted to work with bigger artists. I wanted to mix records. I wanted to sit in that room and just, that's the only world that exists. And other people in finance or real estate, they're into that kind of stuff. I never cared for those things. So now I look back at it and I go, man, I I wish I would have done those things. But even today, I would rather sit there and mix and turn off my phone and create something that I think is inspiring to me and, and makes me go home proud of what I've just done. And I, I don't know if all those people can always say that. And jobs are, they're different, but they're the same. There's like, we all have the same struggles and dealing with people and, and dealing with money and things like that. So if you truly love something, it doesn't matter whether you're an engineer or you're a veterinarian or you're a real estate agent. If you believe in that, then that's going to make you happy. And this does make me happy, what I do. The, the long hours and things like that, sometimes they can get really draining on you. But I have been fortunate to work with some artists that you don't mind staying up till four in the morning with them because they're fun, they're entertaining, they're, they're, tr- they're, tr- they're striving to be something or do something. And, and those people are exciting to me and that makes me want to work harder as well. You have kids, right? I do. I have two kids. How does the work-life balance thing work for you now? So what I try, and I, I say I say this, and it's not always true, but I try not to work on weekends. And if I do work on weekends, it needs to be something special or something very crucial. And I try to spend as much time with them whenever I can. If I'm mixing records, I'll often work, I'll start earlier and finish earlier so I can spend time there. And I think it's important. I mean, the most important thing in our life is our relationships and the people we live with. And those it, you know, it's hard when you're not around all the time. So you have to find ways to be around. And if there's something specific, like you have to go to a recital, you know what? I'm not going to work that day. And the biggest artist in the world could call me up and I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I can't do it. Like, I'm sorry, but we'll just do it the next day or the next day. And I try to juggle those things. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, I was up until, I mean, I started at 8 a.m. yesterday and finished at midnight. And I only saw my kids in the morning and my wife in the morning. But I had to do that. So you just do that. And then there's those times where, hey, you know what? I can work from home and I can edit and tune vocals so then I can see him. I can have dinner. I can do the things that we really, really want to do. And one thing that I really like to do too is you brought up like, do you have a home studio? My home studio is my laptop and some crappy all tech speakers. So I can do my work and some headphones because I like to separate that side of my personal life from my work life. I don't need drummers and guitar players and singers showing up at my house, going in my refrigerator, messing up my kitchen or whatever it is. I don't need those people at my house. They can be at the studio, make the biggest mess you want. I don't care. But the personal life, there's just, there's an awkwardness to kids around adults that are those relationships. And you want to keep that as far away as you can, I believe. (laughs) And don't get me wrong. Some of the people I work with, they're my friends. I, I'll go to dinner with them or I'll go to the beach or do things, but not all of them. And there's some of them that I wouldn't want to do those things with, yeah. but that's okay. That's an interesting point. There's people that you work with and respect, but you might not be friends with them and you might not have them over for dinner. Yes. But here's a really 
interesting thing about our jobs is we have a very emotional attachment with these people because they're in there, they're spilling their guts about stories or whatever it is. There's a time where you start to become friends with them, even if you're not a friend, because they're paying you to show up and be there. So it's, you're not really a friend, you're, you're working with them. And sometimes we have this attachment to these people and to these projects where if you do a record for someone, you just expect to do the next one because you're friends and they use a different producer or engineer. And it saddens you because you're like, oh, I thought we were friends. And it's like, well, they were paying me to show up. So think about it. How friendly are we really? And I look at that and I, and I have to look at every client that I deal with. And some, some of them are my friends, I truly believe, but other ones are not, and, and they will not be. But, they, but it's not that I can't do multiple records with them. I can. I always look at this side of things. If I were to get a flat tire on the way to the studio, which singer or drummer would actually stop by and help me with a jack and do it? Well, you know, about 30% of the people would. The other 70 are going to be like, what? Why are you calling me? And it's like, okay, those are the people that, that chooses who's a friend and who is a client. That, that's really <laughs> what it means. You know what I mean? Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, Lemmy was a really, really good friend of mine. And if I were to have gotten a flat tire, he would have been like, call AAA. He wouldn't have shown up. He wouldn't have helped me. But in a weird way, he was a friend that would have said, I'll pay for it. Here, here's $100, call AAA. Because I had that relationship with him. But he didn't do those average Joe things. So he would have just let me be on my own. The, the guitar player for Pennywise, Fletcher. He's one of those guys where if my axle broke, he'd come down and help me fix it. And no problem. But then the next week, he might call me up and be like, well, I want to do this guitar lick on this thing, but there's no money. I'd be like, cool, show up. Let's do this guitar lick, whatever. It, well, I want to do it at 4 a.m. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but the funny thing about Fletcher is he would bring, he'd be like, well, what do you want? Do you want steak or do you want lobster? And I'd be like, lobster. He would bring me a lobster. He would do silly things like that to make up for the fact that we're doing something at an odd hour or he would take me to dinner or whatever. Like, and, and, and that, but that also shows me he's more of a friend than just a client. He is a friend. And, that's, and that's, those are unique people. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So as a freelancer who's paying rent on a, on a studio, you've got a family. Do you think you're better at managing money now than you used to be? Mm. You know, what's weird is I don't like to spend money. I like to just put it in the bank and pay my bills and do my thing. I don't like to go shopping and 
I've always been good at managing money. I hide money. If you spend money, you, you can't do what I do. You wouldn't, you'd be broke right away. You just got to be careful with your money. And an important thing is, I always look at this, is there might be a month where I make hardly any money. There might be a month where I make a, a, a great paycheck. You take that great paycheck and that might have to stretch for six months. So just keep it and don't spend it. And if you make a bunch of money, never spend it right away. And unless you're the kind of person that has eventually saves up enough money where you can. So you just, you got to be frugal as can be all the time in this industry. I like that you say you hide it. Do you hide it from yourself? <laughs> no, you know, just, you just put it in the bank. You just, you know, that that's another side where like, some people focus on different things in life. And I have the I have friends that are talk about this, the one percenters of the world. And I never really even cared or thought about that until they brought up those kind of situations. It's like, don't you want to be? And I'm like, yeah, I would love to have the resources of that, but I want to make sure I have the happiness that goes along with living life as well. I don't want to just have the resources, but not have the happiness. Yeah, I, I like that. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm not as smart because of that. But I don't know. Like you just, you got to be passionate. And I don't know. I don't want to be the guy like, well, you made a billion dollars. I'd rather be the guy that said, wow, you helped out all these artists and you were a part of this and you did this and that. I want to, you want that sort of legacy. Like a legacy is not just because you made a billion dollars. Like, okay, great. But what does that mean? What did you do to do that? And if you did something special, that's awesome. Like you built some amazing company. That's so killer. I love that. But it's kind of not what we do with music. Yeah. It's, I, I love that that's important to you. Leaving the legacy, helping others out. Yeah. Do you still get up at six in the morning to surf? <laughs> if I have a lot of projects and I'm really busy, I don't get to get up early in the morning and do stuff. I will, if the waves were good right now and the water was warm, I would have gotten up before this and, and gone surfing, but you know, like you get a little lazier and if you're up late, it's, it's too hard. You, you, you got to sleep in a little bit. So yes and no, I'll find time. Yeah, for sure. But not as often as I could. And with kids too, the, the kids shifts your life and you have all of a sudden these other responsibilities that you have to deal with. Yeah. Talk about the psychology of making records. I think like if you have all this great gear or, or not great gear, it all doesn't mean very much unless you can connect with people and unless you can understand and you can watch and you can learn from people and, and they can learn from you. I really believe that when someone walks in the room, and I, I don't say this, I just naturally do this, I'm instantly reading them. I'm reading the things they like and the things they don't like, the bands they don't like. I listen to them a lot. I think I listen more than I talk. Today, talking to you is more than I've talked in like two months. So it's <laughs> it, it's fun to talk about yourself, but... You really have to watch these people. And it's like when a, when a singer gets on a mic, I like to be able to see them in some way because I like to know when they get distracted or they get bored because then I know it's time to take a break. Then I know it's time to entertain them or distract them so they can get back into the mode they need to get in. And I think that's with every artist and everything we do. And I really believe there's, there's making an artist comfortable. There's making an artist feel they're more important than me all the time. And often I'll work with clients that are more important to me. They're more successful or, or have done bigger and better things. So you never want them to think that you're like, oh, I'm better than you. You should do it my way. Like, because that's not what we're doing. Like, <laughs> whether I'm better or worse at something, I'm working on their music, their art. And you really have to befriend people. And 
understand them and listen to them. And I, my job is, like we said, I said earlier, like it's 70% the psychology of it and it's 30% the knowledge of the gear and things like that. Because if you can't deal with people and hang with people, you can't do the job that we do because they'll never trust you. And they'll never want to like spill their guts out on a microphone in front of someone that they don't like. They'll never be honest. I think some people don't listen to what it is the artist wants to accomplish. And they're more fixated on, I already have the solutions for the problems you haven't even told me about because they're so fixated on their gear. Yeah, but they got to take a step back and realize that who cares about sometimes that final thing, like maybe that artist can get there a different way. And you need to listen to that. And you need to embrace that person because you might throw that person off so far that they can never achieve it. You touched on two topics there. As a producer, they're coming to you most often to control them and to say, hey, this is how we're going to do something. But if they have a path, you need to look at their path first. You need to choose when you step in and when you step out. Because if you're in there just demanding people to do this, this, and this, and this, some people don't like that and they're going to be pissed. They're going to walk away from you pretty fast. But sometimes they come to you with this master plan because they've sat on the computer at home and they've, they've recorded a vocal before. They know how to do it all. They might not know how to do it as good as me sometimes. And sometimes they might, but that's where sometimes I have to give them resistance. And the resistance is always a very tough road to go because you're borderline getting fired if you resist too much. But if you don't resist enough, you're not giving them the higher level of quality that they need. So there's these fine lines where you got to know when they're happening and you got to know when you're going to blow it and when you're not going to blow it. But you also have to sometimes elaborate to these artists. Hey, I know you want to do this, but I think I can get this out of you if we do this. Oh, I've never done that before. It's like, can you maybe just give me 10 minutes to try this? And some people say no. And then you walk away and other people embrace it. And when it's good, they'll come back to you and they'll high five you and be like, you did a good job. I love what you did. So it's just, you got to walk a fine line there. It is challenging because there's no cookie cutter personality to a musician. They come in varying degrees of, of, of personality. And part of the job, as you well know, is figuring out, okay, is this this type of personality, this type of personality? How far can I go? Oh shit! I've walked too. I've 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 taken it too far. I'm about to get fired. <laughs> yeah, you got You got to just watch, and that's that's where it goes back to listening and and paying attention to people. Really, that's what it is. Do you have any major regrets within your past, or do you just not look back? I mean, my major regrets are not buying a building and having a studio in a bigger building. <laughs> um, that's for sure a regret. I mean, think about it. No, I don't. I guess I don't really have any regrets. I mean, no, I'm I'm fine with what I've done. And I mean, I want to spend more time with my family and do more things like that. But I do when it's important, I find the time to do these things. But as you know, as a kid gets older, they get busy too. They have other things and they're, they're not, they're often not home all the time. So you're like, okay, I need to do something else. I mean, the regrets are, I wish I'd maybe gotten a business degree along with what I did so I could been smarter on finances and maybe make money in different ways. But also, like, I think maybe I could go to college and do that right now. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit in a classroom and learn that specific thing that I don't really want to learn. So there's that downside of where it's not really a regret. It's like, 
because I'm choosing not to go and do that and learn that. So it's what it is. We're li- I'm living my life. I'm Unfortunately, I'm not a looking at 10 years going, well, if I save this coin and do this and do that, that's where I'm going to be at because my industry isn't that way. Some of the jobs I get come out of nowhere and then all of a sudden you're doing these great things. But two months before, you never thought you would have d- done these things. So unfortunately, it's a little bit of an unpredictable industry. Oh, very unpredictable. Do you do anything to diversify your your income or do you just stay on the straight and narrow path of of making records? I don't really have anything else. I mean, I worked on this TV show called Yo Gabba Gabba for years <gasps> and a TV oh. show called the Aqu- Aquabats Super Show. And in a way that that's tel- the television world. And uh, But it's still, I'm still doing the same things that I do making a record. I'm just doing it in a different way. But um, no, I've, I've been able to make a living and get by doing what I'm doing. I'm a small percentage of those people and I like it, but I also, I have a really high quality that I want to present to everyone that I work with. So those people that appreciate that, they come back and I'm able to, to get more projects from those. God, I loved Yo Gabba Gabba and, and the Aquabats. When my kids were much younger, that, yeah. that Yo Gabba Gabba show was just unbelievable. That show, my friend Christian and his cousin Scott created that. And he came to me with the first pilot saying, hey, I got, I'll give you 500 bucks if you mix this thing. And I'm like, sure, whatever. And he goes, but here's a deal. You get to mix all the episodes if we get a TV show. And I'm like, great, that, like that's going to happen. And they got a TV show. And he called me and he goes, you still want that job? I'm like, of course I do. And that has been one of my favorite jobs that I've ever done because I love the people we worked with. You got to understand that show was kind of a mess in all the best ways. It's a weird show. We were really creative. There were no boundaries to anything we did. And that's why when you watch it, you're like, they're talking about don't bite your friends. Who would say these kind of things? It's like we did and it was fun. And I still hope that that comes back and and we do more of that kind of work because it it, it was a good reward for me. And I, I liked all the people involved in those projects. And I'm still involved. I mean, I'm doing an Aquabats record right now. So it's relationship that I started while I worked at NRG in 1998. I met the Aquabats. And I've done like four records for them, all the Yo Gabba. I've done TV shows with them. So that's a client that there are friends in that. The bass player is an electrician. And I had problems with some electricity at my house. He came to my house, drilled a hole in my roof, crawled in the attic through all the insulation and crap and fixed my electrical. And that, to me, Chad is a friend of mine. He's a true friend and we work together. So that's one of those examples of someone that's crossed the line in a good way. Did you record the song Pool Party? Oh my God. Yes, I did. That was (laughs) at my first studio. And check this out. They did that record and that whole record was all B-sides from this record that I didn't get to produce because they're like, yeah, we, we think we can make a better record. I helped write Pool Party with Christian and the band at my studio and the song called Pizza Day too. We did those two <laughs> songs like within two weeks. We did it all on ADATS, that whole record. Wow. That whole record and the B-sides. Yeah, that was one of their bigger songs ever. Pool Party, baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And just a parting thought there is, Yo Gabba Gabba. That's where I discovered the band, the Ting Tings. Yep. And I was like, who are these guys? This is cool. Yep. Ting Tings are awesome. They came in and she hit like a floor tom the whole time and and then they sang. It was awesome. Well, 
This has been great, Cameron. Very unexpected turn with the the Yo Gabba Gabba discussion, which is a, is a very significant part of my kids growing up. Mm. So that's a, a treat. This room you see here was that's where we mixed every every Yo Gabba episode. All sixty six of them were all mixed here. In the beginning, the dialogue was recorded here, but eventually we recorded elsewhere. And most of the artists that performed on the show performed here and then would go to set, like The Roots or Rocket from the Crypt or other artists like that. So it was done here. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now, just before we go, where where did that fall in the time period of Larrabee and NRG? Probably around 2005 or eight. So after that, a good significant five, six, seven years after that. Okay. We started doing the GABA stuff. And, and those were like, we'd do GABA and then it would go on hiatus for like 18 months and we wouldn't know if it was coming back and then we'd do another season and then we'd go on hi- hiatus. So those actually spanned over probably eight or nine years and we did four seasons of that show. Damn, great yeah, stuff. And it, but like each each time we'd finish a season, we'd be like, well, that's too weird. We're never getting another season from Nickelodeon. And then eventually they would call us back and they they call us back for all those episodes, which was awesome. We were lucky. Wow. Well, do you have a website? I do not, but Maple Studios is on Facebook and I'm on Facebook as well, Cameron Webb. So. Okay. I'll put links in the show notes for you audience so you can find out more about Cameron and his studio. And I got to thank Mike Cuddy for connecting us and introducing us originally. Thank you, Mike. Cameron, great talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Your story is very interesting and a lot of good lessons to be learned there. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Cameron Webb here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Mr. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music. There it is. And Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. Spread the word. Like us on social media. Tell all your friends. Sign up on our email list if you haven't. Go to workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.